Live from the Livingston campus of Rutgers University. This is RLC WVPH in Piscataway. 90.3 The Core. Independent community radio from Piscataway High School and Rutgers University. Learn more at thecore.fm. Many voices. One station. This is 90.3 The Core. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of 90.3 The Core, where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community. I'm Chelsea Carter. This week on Core of the Matter, we are listening to Michelle Alexander's lecture on her new book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. She says the mass incarceration of people of color is the new Jim Crow. It is just such an honor to be here. I was thrilled to be invited, um, but this afternoon as I've gotten to know those who are part of the Mountain View program and to learn more about what has been accomplished here and what has been done here, um, I am just so truly honored to be part of this. And uh, thank you, Terrell and Walter. not only for your warm welcome and for the the passion you bring to this, um, but the hope that you represent for all those who are left behind. And um, your light shines brightly, and uh, you're absolutely right that we've got to keep Mountain View here at Rutgers growing and expanding to welcome more and more people back home. Tonight, I really want to focus on, though not the 40 or so people who are part of Mount View, but the thousands in New Jersey who have little hope of having an opportunity like this, and the millions more around the country who are cycling in and out of our prisons and jails today, now relegated to a permanent undercast. It seems especially fitting that we are having this conversation during Black History Month, a time when many Americans pause to consider, if only briefly, our nation's racial history, our racial present, and the possibilities for our collective future. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. So it seems more than appropriate for us to pause and ask ourselves, what is the meaning of emancipation? What is the meaning of freedom in this era of mass incarceration? A time when millions of people are locked in cages, literally held in bondage. This year also marks the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. 50 years have passed since Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his famous speech, his I Have a Dream speech, I Have a Dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. And so it seems appropriate for us to consider what his dream could possibly mean 
for the more than 60 million people who have been branded criminals or felons and are now subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives, stripped of the very civil and human rights supposedly won in the civil rights movement. I was reminded this morning when I flicked on the television set that this week represents another anniversary, the one-year anniversary of Trayvon Martin's death. On CNN this morning, the media pundits were all in a Twitter. They asked, what have we learned in the year since Trayvon was killed? And the pundits began to argue and began to bicker about what the evidence now shows or what it doesn't. One commentator noted that if Zimmerman hadn't had a gun that night, Trayvon would be alive today. And proceeded to argue for gun control and the debate began to turn to gun regulation. But no one, no one mentioned the one fact that appears to me to be the most obvious, which is that Trayvon Martin would certainly be alive today if he were white. As the bickering of the media pundits gave way to a commercial break, my mind wandered back to a year ago when there was round-the-clock media coverage of the Trayvon Martin controversy, and there were marches in the street, and people were wearing hoodies and sign of solidarity. And I think one of the reasons that Trayvon Martin's death resonated so powerfully with millions of people, particularly black and brown men, was that it was one of those rare situations in this so-called era of colorblindness, a time when we are often seduced by the appearance of great racial progress with the election of Barack Obama and the sprinkling of people of color through educational institutions and halls of power, a time when even talking about race, mentioning race, is itself often perceived as a violation, that suddenly, suddenly, for a moment, the curtain was pulled back. All of the usual rationalizations and justifications for treating young black men as potential suspects, as viewing them as a threat, as a problem, were suddenly stripped away. All you had was a young teenager talking to his girl on the phone, carrying a bag of Skittles and an iced tea, and he is viewed as a problem, as a threat. Someone out of place, possibly on drugs. Someone who needs to be dealt with, harshly confronted and controlled. And it's this experience of being perceived as a problem, a walking problem, a perpetual threat, no matter who you are or where you're going or what you're doing, even if you have nothing but Skittles in your hand, as someone to be dealt with harshly. That unfortunately defines the experience of what it means to be young, black, and male in America today for far too many. Back in 1903, in his groundbreaking book, The Souls of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois, described the experience of being black in America as the constant awareness that others viewed him as a problem. He said, quote, between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question. How does it feel to be a problem? And 
Now, of course, there's a profound difference between having problems, which middle-class folks are allowed to have, white folks are allowed to have, and being a problem, being the embodiment of a problem. And Du Bois described the defining element of African-American life back in 1903 as being viewed as a perpetual problem, one's very existence as a problem to be solved, to be dealt with, managed, controlled, but never solved. Now that was 1903. And today the question seems as relevant as ever to Trayvon Martin, one might ask, how does it feel to be a problem? Now it's easy to demonize Zimmerman, and there was some of that going on on the news today, to view him personally and individually as the problem given the tragedy of what occurred. But by demonizing Zimmerman, I fear we miss the bigger picture. Our justice system has been infected with the Zimmerman mindset for decades, no, actually centuries. And it is this mindset, a mindset that views black men in particular as a problem to be dealt with, harshly, that has led to a brutal war on drugs, a get-tough movement, and to a prison-building boom unprecedented in world history. It's a mindset that pervades our courtrooms, pervades the media, and pervades the conscious and unconscious stereotypes that all of us carry within us, no matter what color skin we live in. And what I fear has been lost in the public debate is that Zimmerman's mindset is not aberrational. In fact, it's quite normal. But today, in our supposedly colorblind society, we generally insist that only law enforcement act on this mindset. We've given law enforcement implicit permission, a license to act on this mindset. But here's the catch. Law enforcement, like the rest of us, must pretend and even try to believe that they're colorblind. They can act on the mindset, but they can't flaunt it. Those are the rules of our new caste system. The uncomfortable reality is that if George Zimmerman had been a police officer, we wouldn't even know Trayvon Martin's name today. After all, it is a crime for a private person carrying a gun to stalk another private person confront them, interrogate them, perhaps try to search them, control them, seize them in some kind of way. If force is used, that's called aggravated battery, aggravated assault, assault with a deadly weapon. But if a police officer with a badge and gun does precisely the same thing, it's called stop and frisk. The experience of the person who's being subjected to the is largely the same. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and it results sometimes in injury or even death. In fact, some people who've had these kinds of encounters with the police and who have also been robbed at gunpoint say that their experiences with the police were actually more frightening. Yet millions of people in this era of mass incarceration have been stopped and frisked by the police, some as young as eight, nine, ten years old, made to lie spread eagle on the sidewalk, arms wrenched behind their backs as they're interrogated about who they are, where they're going, what they're doing, when all they may be doing is heading home with some Skittles in their pocket. <laughs> 
And it was precisely this kind of arbitrary, humiliating, and oppressive police conduct that helped to inspire the American Revolution. It was outrage over precisely these kinds of tactics that gave birth to the Fourth Amendment, which specifically prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. Yet we expect young black and brown men to accept these routine stops, interrogations, and searches and seizures as the price they must pay for the security of others. In cities across America, hundreds of thousands of people are stopped and searched frisked by the police every year. In New York City, it was reported that in one year alone, New York City police officers stopped and frisked more than 600,000 people. One year alone. Overwhelmingly black and brown men. And yet only a minuscule fraction were given any kind of citation, much less an arrest. And I think it's fair to wonder, what would the New York City crime rate be today if those 600,000 stops and frisks of innocent people were counted as crimes, as aggravated batteries or aggravated assaults? Indeed, I think it's fair to ask, in this era of mass incarceration, a time when a virtual police state has been imposed, not on everyone, but on certain people, certain communities defined largely by race and class. Who is safe from what? Now these stops and frisks send the message to kids at a young age that no matter who you are, or where you go, or what you do, whether you stay in school or you drop out, no matter if you're carrying nothing but a bag of Skittles or carrying some dope, that one way or another you are likely going to jail. And what I found most disturbing is that for the most part, many young folks have gotten used to this. They view it just as normal to be viewed as a perpetual suspect. View it as normal. Not long ago, I was talking to a group of kids who were describing their experiences with the police. And they were saying, yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been stopped, I've been searched, yeah. I mean, yeah, a few times. I, I can't even remember how many times. One kid said that the first time he was stopped, he was about 13 years old and he was really scared. It's like, but now, you know, I've got I'm used to it. I mean, now it just feels normal. His word, normal. And it reminded me of how my father used to tell me that his parents, who were from Mississippi, would have to pack a lot of food before they went on a road trip. Because they knew that they weren't going to be allowed into any restaurants and wouldn't even be able to use the restroom along the way. He told me these stories about his parents growing up in the Jim Crow South, and I remember saying to my father, wow, this just sounds so terrible. You know what I mean? It just must have been awful for them to live like that, you know, that just blatant discrimination, the dehumanization. And my father would say, yeah, yeah, it was, it was terrifying. It, it, it was awful, but that's all they knew. It was normal. It was awful, but that's just the way it was. He told me, Grandma used to say, don't waste your time fretting over the rules of the game. Just play the hand you're dealt. And that's what they did. There was nothing else to do. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of 90.3 The Core, where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community. 
I'm Chelsea Carter. This week on Core of a Matter, we are listening to Michelle Alexander's lecture on her new book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. She says the mass incarceration of people of color is the new Jim Crow. Today, I think by demonizing Zimmerman, we miss an important opportunity to expose, discuss, and meaningfully address what has become normal, utterly normal in the United States. Normal like separate water fountains. Normal like sitting in the back of the bus. Normal like packing food because no restaurants will take you in. It's become normal for millions of young men to grow up believing that they too will go to prison. Normal to be stopped and searched for no reason. Confronted by someone who wants to know where you are, who you are, what you're doing. Not once, not twice, but over and over again. It's bad, we're told. Yeah, it's a shame, but it's just the way that it is. It's just the way that it has to be. So I fear that quite unwittingly, now looking back one year later, that many well-intentioned activists and advocates did us something of a disservice in the Trayvon Martin controversy by treating his cases so exceptional, so extraordinary. Many advocates, I think, failed to convey that it was a Zimmerman mindset, far more than the man himself, that must be found guilty. This mindset that's been normalized and rationalized, and the rationalization of this mindset has created an enormous amount of denial about what we as a nation have done again. Last week I was in Chicago, President Obama's hometown. And it is nothing short of remarkable that 150 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, 50 years after the March on Washington, we have a black man as president in the White House. But when you go to Chicago, the paradox of Obama's presidency becomes undeniable. Because there in Barack Obama's hometown, just as is true here and in cities across America, a vast new racial undercast has emerged, though their plight is largely invisible rarely discussed on the evening news. Occasionally, we may hear reports of the violence, reports about homicide rates, violence that's spinning out of control in certain places, certain spaces defined by race and class. Now, I'm grateful that we are having a national debate about gun control and that, for the moment at least, politicians and the media are paying attention to the deaths of black and brown children not just white children who may have been killed by deranged mass murders, but I am disturbed, deeply disturbed, that this national debate about violence and gun control, there's little honest discussion of why, truly why, some communities are now war zones, while others are not. For while I support gun control and background checks and all the rest, let me be very clear about that. I think we have got to admit that the reason that some communities are war zones and others are not doesn't turn on the number of guns in those communities. I live in a neighborhood where I have come to learn that many of my white neighbors own guns. Many of them. 
But in my neighborhood, there is not much violence to speak of. It's a safe community. What makes my neighborhood different from neighborhoods that can be described as war zones isn't simply the number of guns that can be found, but it's the number of good schools, the number of jobs, the number of meaningful opportunities, the hopes that are likely to be realized, the number of hopes that aren't fantasies. Those are the numbers that really matter when it comes to violence and to what communities are safe and what communities are not. But in Obama's hometown, as in so many other cities across America, a choice has been made. And it has been a deliberate choice. It's a choice that has been made over and over and over again. Rather than good schools, we have built high-tech prisons. Rather than create jobs, we have invested in a race to incarcerate that has left millions of Americans permanently locked up or locked out. William Julius Wilson has written an excellent book entitled When Work Disappears. He cites statistics showing that if you compare black jobless men to white jobless men, the racial disparity in violent crime disappears. In other words, if you control for joblessness, the racial disparity in violent crime just vanishes. The reality is that jobless men are more likely to engage in violence than men who have jobs. Now, joblessness is not an excuse for violence by any means, and most people who are jobless do not engage in violent crime. But there is no denying that certain conditions are likely to create violence. And those conditions exist for people of all races. There's not something special about black men that make them more violent. No. Where there are high rates of joblessness, particularly chronic joblessness, you will also find high rates of violence. But work has disappeared in many communities across America over the past few decades. Wilson describes how jobs have literally vanished from urban areas in recent decades. You know, as late as 1970, more than 70% of all African Americans working in cities like Chicago held industrial blue-collar jobs, factory jobs. These were jobs that did not require a high school diploma. And yet you could still support yourself and even a family. You wouldn't be wealthy. You wouldn't be doing well, but at least you could survive. You could support yourself. But by 1987, the industrial employment of black men had plummeted to 28%. Hundreds of thousands of black men in particular found themselves suddenly jobless. Due to globalization and deindustrialization and technological advancement, those factories disappeared, moved to other countries, moved to distant suburbs. Those jobs vanished. Those factories were once located near racially segregated communities to have quick access to cheap black labor. Suddenly those jobs were just gone. Hundreds of thousands of people found themselves trapped in segregated, jobless ghettos. 
Now, we could have responded to this extraordinary crisis with an outpouring of care, compassion, and concern. An extraordinary crisis, a literal depression, the economic collapse of poor communities of color across America. We could have responded with economic stimulus packages, bailout programs. We could have invested in education to ensure that these young people living in these communities might have a shot of making the rough transition from an industrial economy to a service-based economy, a new economy in which you needed not only a high school diploma, but a college degree. We could have invested in education and job training, job creation in these communities. But instead, we chose a different path, a path more familiar when it comes to matters of race. We chose the path of exclusion, punitiveness, and despair. We ended the war on poverty, and we declared the war on drugs. Black men suddenly found themselves unnecessary to the functioning of the U.S. economy. No longer needed to pick cotton in the fields or labor in factories. Black men found themselves suddenly disposable, no longer necessary to the U.S. economy. And this crisis emerged at precisely the same moment that a backlash was brewing against the civil rights movement. A backlash that manifested itself as the Southern strategy, as pollsters and political strategists plotted to use get tough rhetoric on issues of crime and welfare to appeal to poor and working class whites, particularly in the South, who were anxious about and resentful of many of the gains of civil of African Americans in the civil rights movement. It became the perfect storm. And more than a few black politicians joined the chorus of getting tough as crime rates began to rise amidst the economic collapse. And of course, what black politicians and communities of color have come to learn over the years is that if you ask for good schools, you're not likely to get them. If you demand jobs, you're not likely to get that. The one thing poor folks of color ask for and get are police and prisons. And they got far, far more than they bargained for. Just a couple decades later, millions of people are cycling in and out of our criminal justice system, trapped in a permanent undercast. And the media and politicians and so many now stand back and feign shock and horror as these communities that have been abandoned, where work has literally disappeared, and where schools have been allowed to fail, and where a literal war has been declared. And we stand back and wonder, why the violence? Why can't people get it together? What's wrong with them? I think the deeper, more pressing question is what is wrong with us? Why have we been so quiet for so long? Well, I've been asked to share with you tonight the thesis of my book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And to a large extent, the title of the book speaks for itself. I argue that today, the so-called era of colorblindness, and even in the age of Obama, that something akin to a caste system is alive and well in America. The mass incarceration of poor people of color is tantamount to a new caste system, one that 
shuttles young people from decrepit, underfunded schools to brand new high-tech prisons. It's a system that locks poor people, overwhelmingly poor folks of color, into a permanent second-class status nearly as effectively as earlier systems of racial and social control once did. It is, in my view, the moral equivalent of Jim Crow. I'm always eager to admit, and I admit it over and over again, that there was a time when I rejected this kind of talk out of hand. There was a time when I rejected comparisons between mass incarceration and slavery or mass incarceration and Jim Crow, believing that those kinds of comparisons and those kinds of claims were exaggerations, they were distortions, even hyperbole. In fact, there was a time when I thought that people who made those kinds of claims and those kinds of comparisons were actually doing more harm than good to efforts to reform our criminal justice system and achieve greater racial equality in the United States. But after years of working as a civil rights lawyer and advocate, representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality, and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color, and attempting to assist people who have been released from prison, face one legal barrier after another to their re-entry, struggling to re-enter into a society that had never shown much use for them in the first place. I had a series of experiences that began what I now call my awakening. I began to awaken to a racial reality that is just so obvious to me now that what stuns me in retrospect is that I could have been blind to it for so long. As I described in the introduction, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than the language we use to justify it. In the era of colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices that we supposedly left behind. Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways in which it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, exclusion from jury service, are suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of 90.3 The Core, where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community. I'm Chelsea Carter. This week on Core of the Matter, we are listening to Michelle Alexander's lecture on her new book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. She says the mass incarceration of people of color is the new Jim Crow. Now, as I said, I reached this conclusion reluctantly. It, it took a number of experiences for me to kind of finally open my eyes, for me to finally get it. But one in particular changed me forever. It involved a young African-American man who was about 19 years old who walked into my office one day 
At the time, I was directing the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU in California, and we had just launched a major campaign against racial profiling by the police. We were calling it the Driving While Black or Brown campaign. And we had created a hotline number for people to call if they believed they had been stopped or targeted by the police on the basis of race. And we put this hotline number up on billboards in Oakland and San Jose and in communities around California, urging people to call the hotline if they believe they've been stopped or targeted by the police on the basis of race. In fact, within the first few minutes of us announcing our hotline number on the evening news, we received thousands of calls. Our system crashed temporarily. We had to expand our capacity just to deal with the volume of people calling our hotline. And so I was spending my day interviewing one young black man after another who had called the hotline to report discrimination by the police. And I was looking for the perfect plaintiff. We had already filed a lawsuit against the California Highway Patrol challenging racial profiling in their drug interdiction program. We were looking to sue some other police departments in California as well departments about which we had received complaints of discriminatory practices and tactics. So I was spending my day interviewing one person after another who had called the hotline in search of a plaintiff in one of the cases we hoped to file. And it had been a long day, and it was late in the afternoon, and I was getting tired, and this young man walks into my office carrying a stack of papers about this thick. He had taken detailed notes of his encounters with the police over about a nine-month period of time in his neighborhood in Oakland. He had descriptions of every stop, every frisk, every search on the street, on the sidewalk, every time his vehicle had been pulled over, every time he had been interrogated about where he was going or what he was doing, times when the police had roughed him up. He had descriptions of every encounter along with names of witnesses we could call. People were there and could corroborate the story and could explain what had gone down. He also had names of officers. In some cases, he didn't have, even have badge numbers of officers. Just an extraordinary amount of documentation and detail. I started to think, maybe he's the one. Maybe he can be the name plaintiff for the suit were planning to file against the Oakland Police Department, alleging a pattern and practice of profiling by the department. So I started to get excited, asking him more questions, more information. I could see he was a good-looking young man. I thought, he'll do great on TV, he'll be great in the media, he'll be good before the jury, and I'm getting more excited, asking more questions, and then he says something that makes me pause. And I said, what, whoa, what, what did you just say? Did you just say you're a drug felon? Did you just say you're a drug felon? We had been screening people with prior criminal records. When people would call our hotline number, we would send a form to them to fill out, ask them a bunch of ex questions about their experiences with the police, including, have you ever been convicted of a felony? We believed we couldn't represent someone as a named plaintiff in a racial profiling case who had a felony record because we knew that if we did, law enforcement and the media would be all over us saying, well, of course the police should be keeping their eye on him. He's a felon. He's a criminal. They're doing their job. That's not racial profiling. They're going after the criminals. And we knew that we wouldn't be able to put someone 
on the stand in front of a jury with a felony record without exposing them to cross-examination for an hour about their prior criminal history, thus deflecting the jury's attention away from law enforcement conduct and turning it into a trial about a young man's prior criminal past. So he'd been screening people with prior criminal records that he had not acknowledged his felony record. So I'm sitting there looking at him saying, what, are you, are you a felon? Are you a drug felon? And he gets quiet, he just stares down for a while, and then finally he looks up and looks me right in the eye and he says, yeah, yeah, I'm a felon, I'm a drug felon, but let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what happened. The police planted drugs on me and they set up me and my friend and then they beat us up and he starts telling me this big long story about how he'd been framed and the cops planted drugs on him and beat him all up and I was just like, oh no. I am sorry. I am sorry. I am not going to be able to represent you if you have a felony record. He starts trying to explain and give more details and the names of those officers. I, I, I am sorry. I am sorry. I cannot represent you. I know it seems unfair to explain why. I, I'm sorry. I cannot represent you. And he keeps insisting on his innocence. He said, look, look, no, I just took the deal. I just took the deal. I was scared of doing the time, so I, I, I just took the deal. They told me, you know, I, I wouldn't even have to spend a day in prison. I, I just, you know, they were telling me I could do 10 years, but but if I just took the deal, I could just walk out with felony probation. That'd be it. That'd be it. I could just walk out. I, I, I just took the deal because I was scared of doing the time, but I'm telling you I'm innocent. I didn't do it. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't represent you. I'm sorry. And then he becomes enraged. And he says to me, you're no better than the police. You're no better than the police. The minute I tell you I'm a felon, you just stop listening. You can't even hear what I have to say. He says, what's to become of me? What's to become of me? He says, I can't get a job anywhere because of my felony record. Anywhere. I can't even get access to housing. So do you know I can't even get into public housing? Because of my drug felony? Where am I supposed to sleep? So you know I have to sleep in my grandma's basement at night. Because nowhere else will take me in. So how am I supposed to take care of myself as a man? So I can't even qualify for food stamps. Because of my drug felony. I can't even get food stamps. How am I supposed to feed myself? How am I supposed to take care of myself as a man? He says, good luck finding one young black man in my neighborhood they haven't gotten to yet. They've gotten to us all already. And with that, he snatches all of those notes and papers up off the table, just starts ripping them up, throwing them in the air. He walks out of my office yelling at me, you're no better than the police. Can't believe I trusted you. Well, several months after that, I was doing a public access television show that was broadcasting live out of his neighborhood. I was doing public access TV because we were trying to organize several thousand people to attend a major protest against racial profiling by the police, protesting the governor's refusal to sign racial profiling legislation. And we had been holding a major campaign, holding town hall meetings up and down the state, doing a media campaign, and it was just a few days before the demonstration. And I, So I was doing public access TV, broadcasting live out of his neighborhood, telling people to get on the bus and go to the demonstration at the state capitol. Broadcasting live out of his neighborhood. The minute the show goes off the air, he comes bursting into the studio, carrying this dirty potted plant. And he comes rushing up to me, and he's emotional, practically on the verge of tears. He comes rushing up to me, thrusts this plant in my arms, and he says, 
I'm just here to tell you I'm sorry. I'm just here to tell you I'm sorry. I shouldn't have treated you that way. I should have spoken to you that way. Since I've been seeing you on the news, I've been seeing you out there on TV trying to fight for our people, trying to do the right thing. And I just, I just came here to tell you I'm sorry. Said I would have bought you some flowers, but I still don't have any money. I snatched this plan off my grandma's front porch. <laughs> and then he turns around and goes running out of the building, all emotional. And I go chasing after him, and he gets in this broke-down car and disappears. Several months after that, I'm in my office, open up the newspaper. What's on the front page? Yeah. Oakland Riders police scandal was broken. Turns out that a gang of police officers, otherwise known as a drug task force, have been planting drugs on suspects, beating folks up in his neighborhood, and who's identified as one of the main officers charged with planting drugs on suspects and beating folks up? Officer he had identified to me as planting drugs on him and beating up him and his friend. And I'm embarrassed to say that it's only then that the light bulb finally started to go on for me. And I thought to myself, he's right about me. I am no better than the police. The minute he told me he was a felon, I just stopped listening. I couldn't even hear the rest of what he had to say. And that was the beginning of me asking myself some hard questions of myself as a civil rights lawyer and advocate. How am I actually replicating many of the same forms of discrimination, marginalization, and exclusion I'm supposedly fighting against. And I also started asking some questions about the system itself. Why is it that we hadn't been able to find one young black man in his neighborhood they hadn't gotten to yet? What was really going on? And that was the beginning of me doing just enormous amount of research and asking myself and others a lot of hard questions and listening more carefully to the stories of those cycling in and out of our prison system. And what I learned in the process was that my great crime wasn't in refusing to represent an innocent man. My great crime was in imagining that there was some path to racial justice that did not include all those we view as guilty. Today, there are more African-American adults under correctional control, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised than in 1870. The year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Now, of course, during the Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests operated to keep black folks from the polls. Well, today, in many states, felon disenfranchisement laws accomplished what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. This undercast experience is not limited to some small segment of the African-American community. No, to the contrary, in many large urban areas today, more than half of working age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. In cities like Chicago, Obama's hometown, cities all across America, 
There are high concentrations of poor black folks. The numbers are far, far worse. In fact, in Chicago, a study was released showing that if you take into account prisoners, if you actually count them as people, and of course prisoners are excluded from poverty statistics, they're excluded from unemployment data, you know, thus masking the severity of racial inequality in the United States. But if you actually count prisoners as people in the Chicago area, nearly 80% of working-age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast, not class, caste, a group of people defined largely by race, relegated to a permanent second-class status by law. Now I find that today when I tell people that I now believe that mass incarceration is like a new Jim Crow or a new caste system. People typically react with this shocked disbelief. They say, how, how can you say that? How can you say that? Our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control. It's a system of crime control. And if black folks would just stop running around committing so many crimes, we'd have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their basic civil and human rights. But therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration, namely that it's been driven by crime and crime rates. It's not true. Just not true. Over the past few decades, our prison population quintupled. In fact, within a 30-year period of time, our prison population quintupled, not doubled or tripled, quintupled. We now have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly oppressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But again, this isn't due simply to crime or crime rates. During that same period of time, crime rates fluctuated. Went up, went down, went back up again, went down again. And today, as bad as crime rates are in certain parts of the country, nationally, crime rates are at historical lows. But incarceration rates especially black incarceration rates have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or going down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains the sudden explosion and incarceration, the birth of a penal system unprecedented in world history, if not simply crime and crime rates? Well, the answer is the war on drugs and the get tough movement, that wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States. As there was economic collapse in poor communities of color and a backlash brewing against the civil rights movement. In the midst of all of that, a war was known as the War on Drugs. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of 90.3 The Core, where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community. I'm Chelsea Carter. This week on Core of the Matter, we are listening to Michelle Alexander's lecture on her new book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. She says the mass incarceration of people of color is the new Jim Crow. Drug convictions since the drug wars declared have soared more than 1,000%. 
And to get a sense of how large a contribution the war on drugs has made to mass incarceration, consider this. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Now, most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime. Most do. You don't have to raise your hand. It's a fact. But the enemy in this war has been racially defined. Not by accident, the drug war has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, even though studies have consistently shown over and over again for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites. Or sell. Now that defies our basic racial stereotypes about who drug dealers are. You picture a drug dealer in your mind. If you're like most Americans, you probably see some black kid stand on the street corner with his pants egg. And plenty of drug dealing happens in the hood everywhere else in America as well. It happens in white suburbs. It happens on college campuses. It happens in communities of all colors. It does. Drug dealing happens in communities of all colors and all classes, but those who do time for drug crime are overwhelmingly black and brown. In some states, 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison have been one race, African American. Now I know that many people, when they see the data, they say, oh yes, that's a shame, that's, 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 that's a shame. But we need to get tough on them them in the hood, because that's where the violent offenders are. That's where the drug kingpins are. We need to get tough on them in the hood. That's where the drug kingpins are. But what people don't realize is that this drug war has never been aimed primarily at rooting out the violent offenders or the drug kingpins. Federal funding has flowed to those state and local law enforcement agencies that boost the sheer volume of drug arrests. It's been a numbers game. Law enforcement agencies have been rewarded in cash for the sheer numbers of drug arrests, the sheer numbers of people who are swept into the system through the drug war, virtually guaranteeing that law enforcement will go out looking for the so-called low-hanging fruit, stopping, frisking, searching as many people as possible in an effort to boost their numbers. And to make matters worse, federal drug forfeiture laws allow state and local law enforcement agencies to keep for their own use up to 80% of the cash, cars, homes seized from suspected drug offenders. You don't have to be convicted, just suspected of a drug offense. Police can take your cash, take your car and sell it, and keep the proceeds for the department. Thus giving law enforcement a direct monetary interest, not in ending drug addiction or drug abuse or even drug-related crime, but in the longevity of this war itself. And the results have been predictable. The overwhelming majority of people swept into the system through the drug war have been arrested for nonviolent, relatively minor drug offenses. Most people in state prisons convicted of drug offenses have no history of violence or even significant selling activity. And in the 1990s, the period of the greatest escalation of this drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession a drug less harmful
doubtful that alcohol or tobacco, less addictive, but at least, if not more prevalent in middle-class white communities and on college campuses as it is in the hood. But by waging this drug war almost exclusively in the hood, we've created this vast new racial undercast in an astonishingly short period of time. Now, where has the U.S. Supreme Court been in all of this? The supposed defenders of discreet and insular minorities? Well, far from resisting this drug war, the U.S. Supreme Court has facilitated it at every turn. The U.S. Supreme Court has eviscerated Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, granting the police license to stop, frisk, search just about anyone, anywhere without a shred of evidence. No reasonable suspicion, no probable cause, as long as they get consent. Now, what's consent? Consent is when a police officer walks up to a young man on the street and the officer has one hand on his gun and he says, Trayvon, put your hands up in the air for a minute so I can frisk you, see what you got on you. The kid says, uh-huh. That's consent. And that young man has now just waived his Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. The police don't have to have a shred of evidence, probable cause, reasonable suspicion, to engage in that encounter. While one might be tempted to say, oh, well, that's just kind of a temporary inconvenience for that young man, that young Trayvon, who's viewed as suspicious and frisked for no reason, without evidence or probable cause. It's not just about one individual or another. These discretionary stops repeated thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, over and over and over again. I mentioned your police department stopped up for 600,000 people in a single year, adding up to enormous racial disparities, which the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled we cannot even challenge in a court of law. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled explicitly in a series of cases beginning with McCleskey versus Kemp and Armstrong versus the United States that it does not matter how overwhelming the statistical evidence is. It does not matter how severe the racial disparities are. Unless you can offer proof of conscious intentional bias, tantamount to an admission by a police officer, you can't even state a claim for race discrimination in the criminal justice system today. So many of those racial profiling cases that I was bringing 10 years ago can't even be filed in a court of law today. The U.S. Supreme Court has closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias at every stage of the criminal justice process, from stops and searches to plea bargaining and sentencing. Unless you have proof of conscious intentional bias, you can't even get in the courthouse door. But of course, that kind of requirement of proof poses a real challenge because most police officers know better than to say, well, yeah, Your Honor, the reason I stopped him was because he was black. Not likely to say that. Most prosecutors aren't likely to say, well, you know, I would have given him a better plea deal, but you know where he's from. You know, a black kid, he's, he ain't going anywhere. I can him another chance. Most law enforcement officials, like the rest of us, know better than to state our racial biases out loud. But more importantly, so many of the biases and stereotypes that drive law enforcement decision-making operate on such an unconscious level that many well-meaning, well-intentioned officers can't even admit to themselves their biases and stereotypes. A well-meaning officer seeing a group of young black kids walking down the street with their pants sagging down 
might think to himself, all right, I'm going to pull over, jump out, frisk these guys, see what they're up to, what they're doing. Thinking, I'm doing my job. That same officer, see a group of young white kids walking down the street in their neighborhood, and would never even occur to them. Jump out, frisk those kids, having them wide spread eagle on the sidewalk. I think it would never cross his mind. And that officer may not be intending those black kids any harm, but those discretionary decisions played out over and over and over again add up to enormous racial disparities that we cannot even challenge in a court of law. In this way, the U.S. Supreme Court has effectively immunized this system of mass incarceration from judicial scrutiny for racial bias, much in the same way that it once rallied to the defense of slavery and Jim Crow in their day. But of course, being swept into the system with little hope of challenging the bias that may have gotten you there is just the beginning of the odyssey for so many. Because once you've been swept in and branded a criminal or felon, you're then ushered into a parallel social universe in which the very civil and human rights others take for granted no longer apply to you. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box on employment applications asking, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And it doesn't matter how long ago that felony may have occurred. It may have happened a few months ago, a few years ago, or 45 years ago. For the rest of your life, checking that box, knowing full well that application is likely going straight to the trash. Housing discrimination, legal and absolutely routine by public housing projects as well as private landlords, discrimination and public benefits, perfectly legal, as I mentioned, now, you can be denied even food stamps. Under federal law, you're deemed ineligible for food stamps for the rest of your life if you've been convicted of a drug felony. Fortunately, most states have now op- opted 